Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. All right, well, welcome back to the podcast, guys. Uh, We talk a lot about building science, architecture, uh, entrepreneurship, and today, some of the bases behind building sciences for us to talk about climate change. So I'm really excited. Actually, um, a homeowner that I've been working with for the last couple of years, uh, Don Parent and uh, Peter Dugas are on today to talk about Citizens for Climate Lobby and En-ROADS. So I'm going to go ahead and let them tell you who they are, and then we'll jump right in. So Peter, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, my name is Peter Dugas. Um, I live and work in Portland, Maine, and I, uh, I'm been a volunteer for with Citizens Climate Lobby for about three years, and I'm uh, I'm also an En-ROADS climate ambassador for for the past year. Um, gosh, twenty something years ago, when I twenty three years ago when I graduated from college, I um, was that's when I had my kind of uh, you know awakening about the existential threat of climate change as I was a, a physics undergrad student at Brown University and I was doing data entry on climate stuff with a professor who was doing research then and kind of had been scaring me ever since. Um, that was a lot has changed in the past 23 years, but the trajectory kind of hasn't. So um, a lot of the times I've been kind of uh, flirting around with trying to balance a little bit of uh, of, um, of volunteer work to kind of help out with climate and, uh, and settled on Citizens Climate Lobby one night realized that they were like the one entity that were laser focused on national policy and from a bipartisan, effective and an equitable manner. So that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Awesome. Don? Don? Uh, yeah, my name is Don Parent. I'm originally from Lewiston, but uh, I have engineering degrees from Northeastern and from Stanford and uh, Interestingly, uh, I've been as well associated with the Citizens Climate Lobby for maybe a year and a half now. That's how I met Peter. And I remember it was approaching 40 years ago, so that gives you some idea how old I am, uh, that I was in a radiation heat transfer class in grad school. And uh, one of the topics 40 years ago was climate change and uh, really basically radiation heat transfer fundamentally and how, what was going on. And we looked at it from an analytical perspective and I walked out of that class realizing, wow, I had no idea. And uh, I had to give some, a talk on it also. And uh, you know, the more I learned about it, I realized, wow, this is really a serious matter. And um, that's when I also, but also over the years, I kind of drifted away from it, got lazy about it, as a lot of people have done, but then ultimately got involved with Citizens Climate Lobby, met Peter, found out that we kind of shared the same passion and really looked at this whole climate change issue, uh, not just from a policy perspective, but from a technical perspective. And from that, so it was, it was easy for us to just get to know each other and start doing this. And so Peter and I have been talking about En-ROADS and about the Citizens Climate Lobby and Carbon Fee and Dividend to various groups throughout Maine, Peter more than me. Uh, One of the next groups that we'll be targeting or actually will be addressing will be the uh, Maine Chamber. So um, with that, Emily, I 
where, how do you want to go from here? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Citizens Climate Lobby. So you said it's national. So this isn't just a Maine thing, right? Because you guys are both in Maine. Right. That's right. So yeah, Citizens Climate Lobby has has 195,000, or at least that's a, as of November, I think is the last time I heard the figures, 195,000 uh, volunteers internationally, although most of them are in the United States because we're the laggers on climate policy. But um, they have been around for 15 years or so. Uh, they were founded by uh, a guy named Marshall Saunders in Southern California who made a bunch of money in real estate um, and was kind of operated at first out of, out of the Rotary Network. He was a Rotarian um, and he, you know, I think he was um, trying to do something good with his, uh, you know, with his retirement and ended up uh, settling on climate when he realized he started with micro lending and um, started some micro lending programs in Bangladesh to get some people out of poverty by giving them uh, kind of like um, seamstress equipment and then rising sea levels kind of claimed one of his factories. So he eventually changed course and immediately started thinking about climate as an existential threat for a lot of the world's, you know, the, the global majority, what have you. But he, um, he didn't necessarily start with the idea that Citizens Climate Lobby is mostly tied with, which is called carbon fee and dividend originally. Originally he was just started lobbying Congress mostly because he realized every time he was talking to different audiences about the need for climate change, he would get a, you know some good positive feedback and hope that that would bear fruit over the long term. But then he would read about some cheap uh, federal land grants or leases that were given to federal lands to, to extract more oil or coal or something. And he realized that Congress was the was the was where we should be focusing our attention for the biggest bang for your buck in mitigating the problems that, and stabilize the climate. So he started off with just a handful of people and uh, it grew to 195,000. There's a handful of employees down in DC, but it's 195,000 um, and they're viciously nonpartisan, I would say. They have, uh, they have conservatives, they have independents, they have people well left of center, um, and they're all kind of focused on this carbon fee and dividend thing. So we, what, we, what we do, since we're laser focused on Congress, is um, we do visits, uh, well, before COVID, we were doing in-person DC Hill lobbying visits with volunteers like us who would go down and meet um, in our case from Maine, we'd hit meet representatives Pingree and Golden and Senators King and Collins. And, uh, and that's true from everybody, regardless of, per, of, you know, cultivated these long relationships with everybody from Ted Cruz to Bernie Sanders and everybody in between, uh, trying to move them in the right direction on climate. Um, so for, for those who are listening, um, and really for, for me, can you expand a little bit, either one of you, on what exactly carbon fee and dividends means? What does that mean in general terms? Talk layperson, people just jumping in, people not deep into policy. Yeah, Peter is a great spokesman for this. Go ahead, Peter. All right, well, okay, so, all right, so here's how it works. And again, this is, so their, Citizens Climate Lobby, their, their thing was they wanted to be have something that was effective and it was going to protect the working class or the poor and middle income. Uh, and they settled on carbon fee and dividend, which is now an idea that's endorsed with over 3,500 economists uh, around the nation and you know, 27 Nobel laureates, 
all four living Fed chairs and ex-Fed chairs. And the idea is this, it's got three basic tenants. First thing is you put a gradually increasing price on carbon and that's applied at the source where it comes into the market. So that's the coal mine or the fracking site or the, you know, the oil refinery or the port of import. Um, that gradually increasing price is turned into an, is turned over to an escrow account, which is paid down, paid out in full to every man, woman, and child would get a dividend check from, from that carbon price. Um, so the net revenue would be turned over to everybody as an equal dividend check. Or, you know, if you don't, dividends, a fancy word that if you don't play the stock market, uh, you don't get it. But it's, you know, it's, it's like, I have to think of it as like carbon cash back. We've been calling it that to kind of make it really, because cash is a, a word people gravitate to, uh, rightfully so. So that's the idea. You take gradually increasing price on, on carbon and you turn all that money back to everybody as the second uh, tenet of this process, mm -hmm. policy. And that creates like this positive economic feedback loop where people are both incentivized to move away from their carbon polluting lifestyles. And it's really more about industry than it is individual consumers, but more on that. But, um, and, and while they're doing that, they have the means in order to kind of adjust. So it starts off at 15 bucks, a, uh, you know, the, the, the bill that had been introduced in, in, the, in Congress and will be reintroduced soon again in the new Congress puts a $15 per ton on carbon and it goes up by 10 bucks a year, unless we don't hit certain thresholds that we are, that's mandated and it'll go up more aggressively by 15 bucks a year. But the idea is like that money keeps on increasing 15 bucks. If you equate that through the economic system, they say it's about 12 cents on a gallon of gas. So we're used to about, we're used to that kind of fluctuation, but this is persistent and predictable so that everybody will move from, you know, so that they, businesses and consumers will realize this is only gonna go in one direction. And it gives them a little bit of money. And actually that dividend check coming back, even though I'm getting, you and I are getting the same check that Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill Gates are, get, are getting, it's actually better for the lower income folks because they have less of the carbon footprint than the Jeff Bezos would. Um, and he's going to be paying a lot more into to the, that, that uh, escrow account. And it's been used in other countries. So it's, it's a fascinating system that uh, uses kind of a lot of traditionally conservative ideas like, um, you know, Baker, Jim Baker and George Schultz, who just turned 100, the, the, um, the you know, these are old like Republican uh, emeritus kind of figures, luminaries in the Republican Party. They kind of dreamed up with this idea. And I talked to a Bowdoin economist who is one of the 20 something economists from Maine that have signed on to this endorsement statement. And he said, just as the science's climate change has kind of been settled for the past 40 years, as Don was telling us, the economics of how best to deal with this has kind of been settled for the past 20 years, um, according to him. So uh, that that's kind of the, uh, the, the idea in a nutshell. Right. Yeah. And, you know, politically speaking, I just like to add that you know, always my big concern is that a stalemate relative to climate change is not good for anybody. And if we've got the left pushing for regulation and just clamping down on stuff and the other side is uh, resisting it like a stone wall or vice versa, you know, that uh, on the right, if it's not a market-based influence on what on the outcome, then it can't possibly be good. Well, then maybe the solution is to try to implement a market-based solution that achieves the outcome that both sides seem to want. And to me, 
this is really the only um, the only uh, possibility that exists out there. Principally, I guess, because uh, at the lower income levels, the impact that people would have on their lifestyle by in- simply putting a price on carbon without doing all of the other cashback stuff is more from a, as a fraction of their total income than it would be for people at the higher end. So as implemented um, at the lower income levels, people see a net benefit, a net economic benefit from doing this. And Peter, if you want to expand on that, go ahead, because I think that's a very important point. Yeah, I, no, I think it's true. It's, and it's, it's people get lost on it. And a lot of the salesmanship for a lot of climate policy proposals is avert disaster. And, you know, like we, we, we want to keep Maine lobster. Something, I mean, we're in Maine here. So it's like, we're, there's all, you can't think of a natural, you know, blessing that we have in Maine that's not threatened by this between blueberry harvests and timber industry from wildfires or winter recreation, you know, ice fishing derbies getting canceled. We already are seeing that. Uh, we, Maine lobster, watching that go up the coast, you know, it's like we, we just don't want Maine lobster to go the same direction that Maine shrimp did, which used to be like almost $14 million industry about 20 years ago, and now it's gone. You know, good news is you can still get Maine shrimp, but bad news is you got to go to Newfoundland to get it. Um, but anyway, so the, but the, but the, but the idea, you know, it used to be really hard to explain to people, how's this dividend check work? It's like one of the silver linings of this COVID mess is that people get the dividend check part of it now. And this is one which actually um, is paid for, right? It's paid for on the backs of the polluters that are causing the problems to begin with and who are already in some ways moving in this direction. We're seeing like big oil and gas industries, the biggest ones, when you're, when you're in a world where carbon pollution is being priced according to the damage it does to society and humanity, we, um, you know, who would, it's, you know, yes, big oil industries are going to have to switch, but they've been planning on this for a while. And who would better, um, you know, you can think of examples where they would be winners because like who better to build offshore wind turbines than those who've had, you know, 40 years experience building offshore oil derricks and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons. We just need to access kind of the, you know, the government isn't picking winners and losers. It's allowing the markets and human ingenuity to kind of figure out how to, how to, how to make this transition equitably and effectively. Right. Yeah, I think um, the hard part with our country being so entrenched in the gas and oil industry, right, is that you have to give them a way to transition out of it without it being, you know, this major, like, we can't just stop doing it carte blanche, even though the environment would love that, right? The pandemic, the shutdown, everybody shut down for a year, air quality improved, all this improvement, but we can't we can't just economically shut down, right? Then you trickle down, you see all the effects that had on every other thing in here. So I like this idea of, you know, it, you you continue to pollute, you continue to get taxed, right? There has to be some kind of this incentive to do it. Um, I know 11 years ago, I was doing a lot of um, 
home energy audits in the state of Maine, there was a lot of ARA money from the government. They were giving people, you know, access to funds to help make improvements, which was really huge in Maine. You know, here it's cold, you know, people need to do energy improvements. And there was a lot of talk at that time about like, what if we just put a tax on fuel oil and then we could keep that program running after the fact. And I think there was not enough information in that, right? So people don't like to do things they don't understand and they don't want to make it so that the lower income individuals have the biggest hardship, right, for that. So so potentially they don't have the money to improve their houses, so they have to use more fuel oil, so they're getting taxed more, which they can't afford, right? And so it was like, this whole policy idea didn't quite work the way it was. There wasn't quite enough information and it never came to fruition for, for it to happen. And so then the ARA money went away. And, you know, I look at a bunch of the people who at the time were doing certifications with me, you know, on the residential aspect who they couldn't make a business out of it once the money was gone, because once the incentive was gone, people weren't doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so this is a really kind of interesting idea from the policy aspect of how to how to do the the change with the citizens climate lobby and the you know carbon tax or no carbon carbon fee and dividend carbon fee and dividend. We try like to a, stay away from the T word because two reasons. that does One, not go well. <laughs> carbon, carbon cash back, if you want, only Car because like yeah you got i love carbon cash back it's like the, it's like the, the rakuten of uh <laughs> of, of the of the energy world because you know climate change right those are words that people don't like to hear either too right but there's reasons why we're doing it there are important tangible reasons so using the words cash back makes it easier for mm -hmm. the general public to say well mm -hmm. wait a second okay i i can i can kind of understand that and they're taking into account that it's not particularly harming the people who will struggle the most from from making this change to it so um right. with the citizens climate lobby um who's who's really kind of helping with us as a volunteer what do you guys do primarily well we have certainly at the very least have a meeting once a week uh once once a week once a month and uh now they've become uh, Zoom meetings, but we were meeting in Portland, but certainly some of the other chapters meet in their own area and in their own way. But we have a relatively tightly run meeting, um, and uh, Peter's typically pretty vocal in the meetings, And uh, but it's directed to specific topics each time. And uh, But certainly at the very least, one of the topics is to get more industry endorsements whenever we can get them. And whether it's industry or actually any group, whether it be the Catholic Church or whether it be, uh, take your pick, any organization that we can get to sign on to say they support carbon fee and dividend, fantastic. And so we've been ac actively pursuing that, which is why we're gonna, we're gonna be uh, speaking with the main chamber who have, have expressed interest, which from my perspective is an interesting turnabout. Uh, um, they, people seem to be recognizing the risks that we are incurring by not actively doing something about uh, the emission of carbon carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which as you know, uh, once CO2 is in the atmosphere, it hangs around for hundreds of years. So it's like a ratchet effectively. Uh, when you put it up there, 
it does its bad thing for years and years and years. And that's why we need to start getting this thing down now as soon as we possibly can, that is. But, and Peter, you want to expand a little bit on the meetings and because uh, you're kind of active in organizing them anyway. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm hooked up there for a second. Did, can you hear me guys all right? I'm on the stupid Zoom yeah. call. Yeah, all right. Um, the Yeah, so I think the big things we build a lot around, you know, the the... The center part of our focus, of course, lobbying Congress is um, we do three meetings a year with um, our national lawmakers in hopes that, and you know, I, the last time that they were in person was November of 2019. I brought my wife and daughter down there and, you know, we all participated. My, my 10 year old got to participate in the meeting with King and Collins and we were shared with other chapters from all over the country. So we got to meet with the Kentucky coal country uh, Republican. And, you know, these meetings, because it's kind of nice to fall into a, a volunteer organization where like the ethos is, you know, the, the far middle. We are not kind of, you know, we're not going to be on the political fringes. We're trying to build, you know, no matter where they are, people towards a consensus about doing something about this being a bridge issue and not a, a, a wedge issue, which is tricky to think, of, think about. And in our area, you know, it's like easy to be cynical, but those meetings are the most important. And when we meet with those folks, you know, they're confidential and they're respectful. And, you know, there's always, there's always something to thank anybody for, no matter where they are on the aisle. Um, but the thing we hear over and over again from them is you need to spread the word about this. So you make, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what we're hearing from King Collins, Pingree and Golden. Golden has endorsed, um, but, sorry, Pingree has endorsed, Golden has not yet. But um, what I should say is that they're always telling us, bring more endorsers, spread the word about it. More Mainers need to know about this and they need to know that they're financially gonna be better off, particularly if they are uh, working class or, you know, like both it's, and I, that circles back to what you had said a second ago about what was happening 11 years ago. Cause I got my BPI certification and I was gonna go save the world within my infrared camera and like in some crawl space. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was, that, I mean, it's it was well conceived, it was uh, well intentioned, and I think it wasn't a bad thing to do. But a lot of times, when you get pushback, especially from people on the left, they say like, "Gosh, this gradually increasing price on carbon—that's a lot of money that's coming through the system, and why can't we use that to do R and D on on efficiency or electric, you know, electrification of the of the auto, you know, automobile um, sector or whatever it might be?" Anytime you start rating that pile of money the percentage of households that that uh, either break even or benefit, it's like someplace a little shy of 70%. And when you start taking some of the cream off the top of that, that bottle of milk, then that money goes, you know, then it's like 60, 50, 40% because we're taking some of that money away. So it's in order for it to benefit, there can be complementary policies, but this has to be something where it benefits most people um, economically. And the people who are on that top 30%, they're the ones who should be most incentivized to move away from carbon because they're the ones with the biggest carbon footprint and they can afford it, right? So um, yeah, that's, so that, that's kind of what we do in a nutshell. So the, the meetings really are all about, uh, they break down a lot of like developing our presence, spreading the word about this and showing people, you know, there's a lot of great stuff happening. I mean, we could point to what's happening in Augusta with Governor Mills and the, the Maine Climate Council, which is, you know, the main thing to, to address that. 
that is a amount of work focused on Maine's contribution to the U.S. carbon emissions, which is 0.32% of the U.S. Um, emissions. So, what, so knowing that all that work is going in that direction, we're the groups who are like looking at, well, what, what about, you know, we can flip a switch and have that go away tomorrow, but the rest of the country is still going to go, you know, we can't say anything about that unless we start talking to our national lawmakers. Um, and, you know, what's going to happen to that other 99.62% of carbon emissions, 68%, whatever the math is. And, you know, and I would just say this one, I could go on and on. But the other thing I would say is that Maine, it, I think it's, it's pretty easy to argue Maine is in a uniquely positioned to be the most pivotal player in this. Because one, um, but we're the only state with both of our senators in what's called the Senate the Bipartisan Senate Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a group of 12, now I think maybe 14 senators, even Stephen with Democrats and Republicans, focused on climate solutions. And we're the only state with both, you know, both King and Collins are on that. Uh, and on top of that, Collins has actually authored a bill about a dozen years ago now called the CLEAR Act, which is very similar. In fact, it's a little bit more progressive than what we're, we're the policy we're proposing. She, you know, that was at the era of like cap and trade was the big thing. It was happening in Europe and cap and trade was coming down the pike. And she had said, well, what about what happens if instead of we trade that money and make money, you know, trade those carbon credits and make money that way, if we actually take the dividends, the proceeds from that and give that as a dividend check to each citizen to help them make that transition, which is, you'll notice is very similar. The only difference is instead of putting a hard cap on the amount of carbon, we're putting a gradual increasing price on carbon. So it's a little bit less monkeying around with the economics of it. So um, we, but because of those two reasons, Maine can do so much. And that's why speaking to uh, business communities, Rotarians, church groups, local munis municipalities, we have a carbon cashback program where now a, since the bill was introduced a year or so ago, 12 Maine towns have passed a, a official resolutions supporting this. And we've got another 40 or 50 like in the process of it. Um, we've got a resolution that might be that looks like it's on the brink of a bipartisan resolution going through the, the state house and the state senate. So there's a lot of good news happening. We just need more and more people to think about this and, and move in this direction. So I have a million questions. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, my first one was in talking to it. Um, was who are the best people that you're targeting to get on board? So you you listed a couple of groups, but are you really looking for um, larger groups? Are you looking for homeowners to kind of indicate to their local government that they are interested in people participating in this? Um, is it better for business? You know, Maine doesn't have as strong of a business economy as some of the other states in, in the US, which is also probably why we're at 0.32, right? Um, <laughs> we're not producing as many things so we're not producing as much carbon um but uh, what's the primary target and um then in conjunction with that which is maybe a totally separate question which is towards the end you said there are a couple of towns and municipalities is this something that could be implemented on a local level as as sort of proof to larger policy or it just has to be big right so like the city of portland can't decide that they're going to do it right because that pushes people to other places or or what's the that's that's exactly right yeah states can't states can't regulate interstate commerce individually it's got to be a national policy 
So yeah, you're right. If if even if Maine developed this as part of like, there was some well-intentioned carbon pricing ideas that were trickling through Augusta, and that because it was a small part of the sector, and also because it's a state by state thing, it's difficult to to have that not be something that's going to be an economic uh, detriment because companies will will leave and go to other states where it's not priced. Right. It has to be a national policy. And Don, why don't you take the, the part about who are we looking to talk to and get endorsements from? Well, let's see. So there are, first of all, any number of companies. And when we talk companies, we're talking about industrial companies, if we can. Uh, for example, we approach Valmet, and it's a relatively large European-based manufacturer of paper-making equipment. We hope that maybe by June, July, time frame they may express they may be willing to endorse i think that one of the things that we do find is that companies are a little bit politically sensitive about signing on and uh we just need to tread carefully uh but and with with patience because we don't know what's going on in the background uh for you know so um but really any company well, you know, really, it's an all of the above kind of thing, right? The more people we, the more support we have, as Peter said, relative to uh, churches, relative to uh, political groups and environmental groups, and take your pick, homeowners. Um, we just need people to advocate and endorse so that we can start getting movement in Congress. Because that's at the end of the game, that's the end game, right? Is for our Congress to actually act and take and, may, and actually uh, move forward on a bill. And there is a bill in the House called H.R. 763, Peter, is that correct? Yeah, well, that was its number in the last Congress. So that's gonna be a different number, but it's still okay. gonna have, it's, it's still gonna have the same name, which is the, uh, the Energy Innovation Carbon Dividend Act. You can check it out by going to, still has the website for the old bill. It had 84 co-sponsors in the House and it briefly had a Senate companion bill um, right before Jeff Flake, Jeff Flake from Arizona retired. He was the Republican co-sponsor. And since then, we've been looking for a Republican co-sponsor to fill his, his role. But that's at energyinnovationact.org. You can go and see, you could take 20 seconds it takes to go in and, uh, you know, be to, to, to endorse it yourself, which is just a private message between you and our national lawmakers saying you think it's a good idea. Um, you can do it as a prominent individual or as a company and it doesn't matter. You know, I've had people who are like a two person company that have endorsed it, but. Peter, I've got a question for you. Direct question. So when you do present, do you ever get pushback? And if you do, what are the kind of things that people take issue with? Well, before En-ROADS, uh, was around, which is an online tool that MIT put out to show, which was basically an interactive tool you can use to show the relative effectiveness of different um, climate policies. I get pushback from people say like, well, why would we do this when we've, I've read a lot about cap and trade or why can't we do the Green New Deal or, you know, which as much as we know what that is, because that's kind of there's no, there's no bill yet for the Green New Deal. That's just a ambition, which is, uh, you know, or like incentivizing renewables. All these things are all really good things and they're all kind of complementary with this. But En-ROADS shows that 
when you are, <laughs> as you would say, like when, when you just kind of do like one sector at a time, you can you'd be surprised about where carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions will be popping up in other spots that you don't, you, that you're not um, anticipating. So for instance, like if you go into En-ROADS and you say, I just wanna make all the vehicle, you know, like highly incentivize electric vehicles on the global scale. En-ROADS will like, it's a giant system dynamics thing, which has got 1600 plus equations working at the same time to show you what that looks like. You can do that and you can say, great, you boom that all the way over. You can see the renewables trajectory for the next, you know, for the end of till from now till 2100 goes through the roof, but so does coal. So, you know, you, 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 which is not good. So, which is like the dirtiest of the fossil fuels. So, and you know, you got to think about it. Okay. It's like, all right, we're, we're in Maine or we're in the States, or if you're in a lot of different regions of the United States, you're especially Maine, you're blessed with a fairly renewable heavy or a green uh, electrical grid. That's great. But there, we also have West Virginia and we also have Australia and China and, you know, India, places where they're still really, you know, developing parts of the, of the planet, which are still really heavily reliant on, on coal. And, um, you know, when, when Australia was on fire a, a year ago, February, 2020, their number one export was still coal as the country was experiencing record wildfires. So, you know, the irony of that feedback loop, the, the bad one. So that, yeah, that's, um, that's some of the pushback is like, why would I pick this policy over something else? But I don't get that as much anymore because before it was people have to trust me that I've done my research or that I'm like reading up on it or something. And now it's, yeah, they can see for themselves by playing with that game. And I don't even push them in the direction of carbon pricing. I let them do kind of the sexier picks first, like let's everyone switch to electric vehicle and put solar panels on their house and a wind turbine in their backyard or whatever it might be, or plant a trillion trees. And like I said, they're all great. But until you disincentivize the bad stuff, meaning coal predominantly and, and uh, oil and gas, um, we don't, you know, as Noah Kaufman from Columbia researcher and economist said, with a gradually increasing price on carbon, we have a chance to stabilize the, the climate and without it, we fail, so. Yeah, and I do want to take a break. This this podcast is not uh, sponsored in any means by En-ROADS, but I do want to take a short visual break. So for anybody listening to the podcast, make sure you pop over to uh, the short video that we're going to do here um, for showing En-ROADS and how that works, because this is a really interesting piece of software, which allows you to, to look at that. And so um, walk me through a little bit on En-ROADS what does it do and how do I play with this? Yeah, well, you just go onto the website, en-roads.climateinteractive.org and you, or, you know, just keyword it, n-roads. Um, it's previous thing was called C-roads, which was pivotal for uh, the 2015 Paris Protocol negotiations that the IPC put on. But this one's much more policy heavy where we can like adjust where our energy supply is coming from through these eight sliders and you can see where, you know, the past 20 years of history for the world's energy, where it was and where it's going for the next 80. And then temperature change, where we were 20 years ago and where we are now. Um, and when we're, where we're projected to go with these dashed lines of being like 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels, which would be ideal. And two degrees where we still may be okay, but we'll have to sacrifice 
ocean, you know, the ocean reefs and a few other, you know, bad things will happen, but we'll still survive if it goes above two degrees above pre-industrial levels. And then, you know, you can just basically any one of these sliders and well, you can like check out the a, a detailed thing by clicking on those three dots and seeing what it does. And I can go through and talk about all those different things, but for a quick thing is like I talked about high, you know, on a global scale, electrification, which is great for Maine, but if we did that across the world, it has a disappointing thing because coal goes up, as I had said before, or we can like the uh, Republican only ideas have been talking about like planting a bunch of trees, mainly because it doesn't touch where, oil, you know, where the energy uh, sector is. You can do that. And of course it doesn't change where the energy is coming from, but it shaves off a 10th of one degree, but still far from where we want to go. Or we can like highly incentivize renewables, which is great. You push that back up and green goes through the roof, which is awesome. But you can also see like coal takes a dip, but then it goes back up again because, you know, after the initial hit, coal is going to get cheap and then people are going to want to buy it again because it's cheap. So that's, you know, these are all things to look at. But the one that we've been talking about, there is no silver bullet, there's, but there's a silver buckshot we can put a $15 price on on coal and go up uh, every year so that let's see 10 bucks conservatively the least it would go up is 10 bucks a year kind of more but it'd be 800 because 80 years plus 10 bucks plus initial 15 bucks um and over the next 80 years starting this year well i'm just typing these all in you can see a gradually linear relationship of, of that price on car of carbon when that money all goes back to people and it doesn't get us down to two degrees but it does more than twice any other um, it's 2.6, which is more than any other single policy. Yeah, Peter, before you go too far with that, I just want to comment on something that we should expand on something that you just pointed out, which is if you highly, if you incentivize renewables, people will slow down on the consumption of fossil fuels. And specifically, the one of real concern is coal, clearly. But the important point that you make, we've made, which we, we should just emphasize, is that when you do that, since demand will drop, what will happen? The price will go down. And once the price goes down, all of a sudden coal becomes economically viable again. And away you go. It starts to become a bigger and bigger contributor, not something that we want, which is why um, simply incentivizing one thing or another thing doesn't necessarily do the whole thing that you want to accomplish. You need to disincentivize the bad things, as you said earlier, right? Right, exactly. Right. And it's, and that's the way, and this is the magic of this is that it does kind of both at the same time. Right. It makes coal that much. And then I can just showing you to wrap this up is like meth, you know, charcoal is the, is carbon, which is going to continue to go up unless we do something about it. But you can see like by the end of the century, now it's methane. So then we can talk about like a complementary future legislation would be dealing with methane, which is land use and, and, natural gas line leaks and that kind of stuff. And then with just those two policies, we're almost at that magic two number. And then you can then you can talk about all, once you put those in place, then energy efficiency and electrification, all that stuff, once you've kind of like disincentivize the carbon emissions, all those other things become truly green because you're not worried about them releasing greenhouse gases in other spots. Um, and you know, the, like this graph shows, like the poorer you are, the more that dividend equal dividend check helps you out. Like you can see like most people on the bottom end of the economic spectrum, 
they're, everyone's, they're doing great. Everybody up until about 70 percentile. And like I said, the top 30 is the ones we need to, to hit. And this is just leave you this. This is the map of the world. Like one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, the, like uh, the world is all coming to terms with this. Canada is a great example of this. They've had, a, had this policy for almost 15 years, but the EU just announced that, that starting January 1, 2023, they will be imposing basically the equivalent tariff on any products coming into the, their common market from a country that doesn't have carbon pricing. So we're, you know, like if we're gonna try to export our lobsters to the EU and we don't want them to slap a tariff on it, which Canada is not gonna have because they're already pricing their carbon, then this is, makes a lot of business sense and we're gonna have to adopt this fast in order to, to, to join the world community. So I could What's go- comment about China? Peter, comment about China, you had that up. Yeah. China Sorry. does have a policy. Yeah, it's not nearly what it needs to be. I think it's at five or 10 bucks a ton, like the equivalent of five or 10 bucks a ton, mm -hmm. which is not even what ours would be in the first year. But because the United States is such a, a global player still in the market, um, a lot of the world is waiting for to see what the United States is going to do. And if we adopt this, then everybody's going to be incentivized to kind of compete for American dollars and they're going to want to operate on an equal playing field. So the border adjustment fee, which is, you know, the third part of like first the gradually increasing price then give the money back to everybody. Then the third thing is the border adjustment, making sure that imports are going to have the same kind of effective tariff on them or the carbon price protects American industry so that they don't have to compete with, you know, uh, with uh, steel or whatever being imported from from Algeria or like one of these countries that are in gray here. Um, but it also exports the, the policy. Those other countries, they'll want to adopt the policy because they'll say like, wait, our money is going out the door when the tariffs, are, when the American or EU is putting tariffs on them, we'll adopt it too. So China will, will increase their price conceivably in order for them to be on a level playing field with the EU and the US. I am, um, you know, I, I don't, didn't know much about En-ROADS or how to use it. And now I'm just kind of seeing that brief go through, you know, where you're talking about it. And it's like uh, the policies that, you know, efficiency, like we absolutely should still be doing that in our industry, in the construction industry, we should be doing better things, right? That That's just par for the course. Um, but also too, is that when we're making these policy changes that it has to have this bigger effect and how that bigger effect is really, it's global. It's not just what's going on in the United States too. So, you know, so this citizen climate lobby is, you know, you talked about that being national, but it's more than national, right? You said it's, it's all over and there's other companies and now the EU is saying, okay, anything that gets shipped here, if you're not participating in this, like we're not taking it. Like we don't, we don't want your stuff or we're going, not, we're not going to take it, but we're going to, we're going to tariff it. And then they're going to get it from somewhere else who doesn't have a tariff, who technically might be spending more to reduce their carbon, um, but their economics are going to go up, right? So it's this relationship of, right. of all the things and how they play together to make good policy that actually works to make some kind of effect. So seeing that and being able to say like electrification, um, this is one of the things, um, I love that the car industry is moving towards electric vehicles, right? And reducing carbon emissions. But if you live in a place where your electric is made by a coal fired power plant, you, you haven't actually done better, <laughs> you know? So it's totally. like, 
this is good. We need to do these things, but we can't do these things in spite of the other things that also need to happen in order to have an actual right. impact on on all the, you know, so I always think that the whole like boycott the pumps day or whatever. It's like, oh, you know, are those people really the people who are the biggest polluters? Like if, if, if the, right. the, the shipping industry doesn't do it or these big industrial factories don't do it, then that's right. are you making a little bit of a change? Sure, but it's just, you know, it's a tiny needle as opposed to, you know, this whole- right economic perspective on top of policy perspective on top of to to get to a place that we want and the the sad part for me as far as efficiency um goes is weren't we doing all this stuff in the 70s and then it was like oh energy got cheap never mind forget right. about it we don't right. need that no, th you know that's true uh you're right it's you know by electrifying the grid by electrifying cars for example things like that doing offshore wind, for example, take your pick. We're really nibbling at the margins of the problem because the fundamental problem is carbon that gets mined and pulled out of the ground and put up into the air in the form of CO2. That's the fundamental problem. So carbon fee and dividend attacks the fundamental problem, which is that we're taking carbon out of the ground, combining it with oxygen and putting it up in the air. That's the fundamental problem. But I think it's even worse than that, because as we were talking about, uh, Peter and I have talked about this many times, the analogy that we give is a little bit like playing a game of whack-a-mole, right? If you identify the gas pump is the problem and you go after the gas pumps, the problem is just going to pop up somewhere else in another form and potentially be potentially even worse, uh, which is why if you get at it, get carbon at its root, which is when it comes out of the ground, when it really starts entering the economic uh, uh, system, then we attack the holistic problem. And that's what we, that's what, that's what was interesting to me about uh, the citizens climate lobby, but it became, it was um, the exclamation point for me came when Peter introduced me to En-ROADS because then all of a sudden I started seeing, oh yeah, all of these things are interlinked and not necessarily in a good way. And we need to attack the problem at a more fundamental level. And uh, not only that, it's more fundamental because it's, it's just simply an economic attempt at solving the problem. But in addition, it addresses the concerns of the right and the left from a political perspective. Uh, and I happen to gravitate to that because I think that fundamentally there is you know, uh, a left-based solution or right-based solution only is not going to get us anywhere we need to go. Right. And it's encouraging that we have some Republican support. I mean, we have some in the state. We have some on the national level. Um, and, you know, if we play our cards right and get enough people to speak up, we could, Maine could be a huge player in bringing uh, an independent and a Republican on board to, um you know, in one case where they were 12 years ago in supporting the CLEAR Act, you know, so. Yeah. I think too often um, we don't realize is that m I think most people are in the middle, right? If we if we sort of just let, let go of the 
association to parties the the most people probably have a, a similar and how we get there is different right how we approach it but so you know the the pro-business pro-economics slightly more republican side of it backed up by the pro-democratic social part of helping those who are least fortunate and also impacting climate change, which tend to be, you know, left, but but this policy meeting in the middle, which really is both socially and fiscally in everybody's best interest. Yes, exactly. Uh, Peter, could you address the generational impact of this thing? The gener I should say the generational perspective, how young people left and right uh, are very supportive of doing something on climate. Yeah, it's so what what I was just going to say is there's um, a Lund's polling, which is a Republican polling group, have done this recent thing about when explained to them this carbon fee and dividend or carbon cash back policy, when it's explained to Democrats, people who are most freaked out about climate change, usually uh, it's a, it's a very high support, 80 percent support at the time of their polling about a year ago. But more surprising is when explained to Republicans under the age of 40 years old it's almost the same thing at 75%. We've been talking to, there's a, there's a group from the, um, the University of Maine, young Republicans have uh, been talking to us and they've been using En-ROADS and talking about that because they're fired, you know, it's surprising, but like the reason I think Citizens Climate Lobby has been so successful in meeting like such a wide variety of ideological, uh, you know, the, the ideological spectrum with their congressional meetings with in, in the House and the Senate meetings is because Republicans realize that they're, the future of their party are freaked out about this as young Democrats are. Even though it's considering, you know, the past 20, 30 years, it's been like, oh, it's a lefty issue, green, you know, global warming. But when we see record floods and wildfires and droughts and, you know, 150,000 people killed around the globe because of, you know, related to climate every year these days and only going up, that's a humanitarian issue. And we're worried, you know, this, this policy will have us doing all the things that the lefty wants us to do. It'll have us exceed our Paris, Paris Protocol goals within eight years, save almost like, I think, 400,000 lives because of the particular matter that's no longer being released from coal plants and that kind of stuff, and make, and, you know, build a lot of jobs and, and bring some some money down to the lower classes. It's it's like the average, I think it creates 2.1 million jobs over the course of the first decade is just the, the economic and the third party analysis of this. But it's doing it without picking winners and losers, without mandating that you have to do um, do renewables or, you know, or and relying on personal autonomy and the efficiency of markets, all the stuff that Republicans like rightfully you know, they, they pulled us out of poverty, they can pull us out perhaps out of this mess too. If we just put a price on the thing that's killing us, which is greenhouse gas emissions, carbon, carbon dioxide emissions predominantly. It's like the analogy is uh, that I read in a book, it was really good, which was, it's like 500 years ago when in the middle ages, people were dying from communicable diseases because they weren't taking care of where their, you know, their, their waste was going because it was getting discharged into the streets. People were dying of botulism in, in medieval Europe because of this stuff until they realized, wait a second, we are not making a society as efficient as we could. Let's put a, you know, bring that into the economics, bring that externality into the economic system. We're talking about the same thing, except we're flushing it into the sky and we can't smell it instead of 
you know, onto the streets, you know, that's just the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we're still flushing it into everywhere else too, but that's a totally different problem. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, from your perspective though, as, as someone who's like a green builder, you can also think about just preaching to the winners. If we are now, if we imagine a future where carbon is priced accordingly and it's getting ramped up every year to kind of get us off the habit, then suddenly Maine's forestry industries, all the research done at UMaine to make uh, manuf you know, manufactured wood materials, um, that timber stuff, that not only is now competing with steel and concrete to make skyscrapers, which is much more, which is carbon intensive. We're not talking about forestry industry stuff, which is not only carbon neutral, carbon negative. It permanently right. sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere. Suddenly we have a winning situation, particularly here in Maine and other wooded areas. So that's just one example of things, a pro instead of just trying to not, to avoid the con of lose, losing lobster and winter recreation and that stuff. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of stuff that our industry can certainly be doing to to kind of help that. And, you know, on the BSN Beer Show that I do weekly, we have the Living Building Challenge. And there was a lot of flack to that because the Living Building Challenge is a really tough and fairly expensive uh, program to do. But one of the things that's really encouraging about that program is they have the ability to have manufacturers change the um, components of what they're producing so that something's not on a on a red list right so we have the ability to get manufacturers to change the components of what they're putting in their products which essentially could be directly related to their carbon um, because of you know, maybe it's not being sourced because it's not sustainably made, or maybe it's not being sourced because, uh, you know, some chemical compound that they put in it is leading to carbon offset. You know, some of these, these products are, are just really detrimental, right? So there's, there's a direct relationship to, to our industry, which I'm sure there is to, to really every industry, you know, not just on, on the homeowners, but what we can do there and getting people to buy in at the top. I mean, you, you look at, at electric cars, for example, and Tesla and what they've been doing with their car market and everyone's like, oh, you'll never be able to do that. That'll never work, you know, whatever. But they're changing the their industry, right? And it took somebody to do it, right? So if you can get some of these bigger players on board to endorse it, to say, yeah, we're, if you pass this policy, we're willing to do it. We're willing to try it. We're willing to, to make the, the efforts over a long period of time to, to change, right? Because you maybe you can't do it all at once, right? We can't expect everybody to turn on a dime. Um, but it's those players. Well, well Emily, I was going to add that uh, along the lines of what you were just talking about, you know, as you said earlier, my my wife and I are in the process of building a new home, and we're trying to make it as uh, as green, let's say green as possible. And there's all sorts of things that you encounter along the way. Some of them are economic. Uh, some of it, there's a lot of inertia in the whole construction process anyway. And you have the issue of builders who take a risk. Every time they build a house, they take a risk. There are warranty issues. There are So at the end of the day, a builder is going to want to build a house to maximize his profit from that construction uh, project. And so one of the things that can, it can be really detrimental is to do something that you find to be risky and then find out it doesn't work out. 
and I guess what I'm trying to say is that when the economic incentives come into play, changes in how people approach things are going to just happen naturally. We're going to see changes flow through the construction industry just by merely uh, people having an opportunity to make a little bit more money. And because right. uh, at the end of the day, economics drives a lot of it. Go ahead. You were going to say? Yeah, there's there's actually a direct correlation to that too in the building industry. And what you're talking about is right. Builders are continually trying to manage their risk, but people also don't live in their houses. You know, as as a rule of thumb, I think it's like what five to seven years. People are like trading houses in or doing whatever. Um, in these high performance houses that are well built, people seem to stick around, which is why the real estate industry is is you know hasn't yet caught on that they're worth more money, right? Um, anyway, that's a whole tangent. Um, but the, going back to to the whole idea of of managing risk and these these products and stuff is um, it would be so interesting if all the builders put in there all the things that they either had to go back and fix or that they fixed after the fact when you go and do a renovation, right? Maine's got a lot of old housing stuff. What if you had to go back and tear out and fix and um, one car contractor said to me originally, there's never enough money to do it right the first time, but there's always enough money to fix it. But the, that's because are we just simply not tracking the things that we've all had to go and fix? I mean, it's different if you're, you're doing a renovation because you need more space or whatever. That's personal preference. If you're doing something because it literally failed. And yes, there are building products that aren't meant to last forever, right? Totally get that. That's fine. Those are parts we should be able to take out, replace if we need to, whatever. But every single contractor, I am sure, can tell you about something that they had to fix that was their own problem or was some a problem that somebody else created. And that risk management is what is not being highlighted. And, you know, this is going back to that, you know, your, your same idea is if, if you're taxing it from the beginning and getting it back for the carbon offset, hopefully we're going to eliminate having, well, we, we aren't eliminating having to fix this problem because we have this problem now and we have to just try to figure out how to make it, not make it worse. Yes, um, exactly. So right. that's exactly. where I would love the, the building industry is to really, you know, you, you have ownership of this for a certain period of time, a long period of time, depending on how long somebody, somebody lives there. Right. And so we're managing the risk in that. That's, that's huge. And that, that doesn't mean continuing to do something the same way because products and things change. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I would say just two last things for me is like, because one of the things when people think about this carbon fee and dividend or carbon cash back, they think, oh, that's going to affect me because I'm going to do the things that they originally make, like the primary source of their carbon emissions, which is gas for their car or number two heating oil for their for their house. And that's the extent of what they think. But for all income levels, and actually the wealthier you are, the more this is true, that most of your carbon footprint is coming from embedded secondary sources. So it's like, I could still take that dividend check and foolishly put the down payment on the next gas guzzler or like just piece together what I've got and do my, my usual thing. And I'd still be reducing my gas emissions and actually saving our carbon emissions and saving money because all of those companies around me that are much more sensitive to, to price fluctuations, they're gonna be incentivized to decarbon, to carbonize their product lines before they come to me. 
So it's actually like, a, it's not reliant so most so much on the consumer, but on the industry around you. And then the other thing I'd say is it's amazingly um, popular politically too. Like Canada is the prime example. 15 years ago, British Columbia was, there was a competition amongst the provinces to see who could get their carbon emissions down the most. British Columbia did this exactly, carbon fee and dividend. And they, but the brilliant thing they did was they borrowed against the first check so that that check went out first. Every British Columbian citizen said, I love this new government program. I just got my $40 check in the mail. I don't know what it's for, but whatever. And they didn't notice that the, the price of gas went up, you know, 10 cents a gallon or, and then, and you know, so, but, so, but they bought in right away. So, and since then, like British Columbia has reduced its carbon emissions, or at least in the first years of tracking, twice as fast as the Canadian average, while their economy outpaced the Canadian average. Decoupling the old idea that it have to have emissions in order for the economy to grow. It's been so popular that uh, Trudeau is now accepted as the default, you know, the default policy for the, for the whole nation. So, you know, if it happened, if it can happen there, and that's an extraction state, you know, British Columbia, you know, it can happen here, so. Yeah. High five to all the Canadians, because I actually have a couple of Canadian listeners to the podcast, too, because uh, building science in Canada also seems to be ahead of us. So yeah. nice. <laughs> Prime Minister Dreamboat. So, well, I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on. I know we've been talking for about an hour now and uh, everybody has busy lives, but I appreciate you introducing both the Citizens Climate Lobby and En-ROADS to, to the listeners here on the podcast. Um, it makes me want to just go and play with the En-ROADS map and, and look at it. So I'm deeply fascinated um, now and it's great to hear more. I think the average person doesn't understand policy and how that affects them, right? And so it, it can be very politicized and you kind of latch on to, to one part or the other. So thank you for explaining how the carbon fee and dividends or carbon cash back for, for us regular folks, how that might work and how that might affect us. So um, appreciate you taking the time to, to pop on and, and give us a little feedback. Pleasure. Thanks. Yes, Thanks thank for you. the Yeah, go to energyinnovationact.org or, or En-ROADS. Talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out, emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.